This podcast is recorded and produced on Gadigal land as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country nationwide and their connections to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. You're listening to It Takes Boobs, a Women's Agenda special podcast celebrating the strength, resilience and grit of women across Australia. Through this series, we challenge the typical sexist trope of it taking balls to get big things done. Boy, is that wrong. I'm your host, Tyler Lambert, and this series is made possible thanks to our friends at Stella Insurance. There's no other word to describe Wendy McCarthy but trailblazer a fearless warrior fighting for women's advancement and gender equality for decades across politics, business, health, education and social reform. Wendy has had a long, diverse career defined by no limit of It Takes Boobs moments. Today she joins me to share insights from her incredible career, reflect on the legacy she'll leave and the advice that those following in her footsteps need to hear. So, Wendy, there's honestly so much to unpack when it comes to your career, and it's hard to know where to start, but I've decided to start maybe unoriginally at your childhood. You grew up in Orange in country New South Wales, and in your acclaimed memoir, Don't Be Too Polite Girls, you speak candidly about your complex relationship with your father. What kind of lifelong resolve did your relationship with him give you? I think the capacity to separate his personal behaviour when he was really in the throes of alcoholism from him being an engaging and fun-loving dad when he he wasn't. Somewhere in that time, and I do tell the story in the thing about the boy saying to me, anyway, your father's a drunk, and I said, so, I know. And I, I now look back and I think that was the moment when I decided I'd settle for the good times with him. I'd be my mother's protector and there were two other kids and, you know, I was the eldest one and my mother was very young and and that I would not wear the shame that went with him being an alcoholic. And it was more or less instinctive because by that time I was born in Orange and had the first seven years of my life, but by this time we were in Forbes. And to go into town was a big thing. So my father went in usually once a week to get supplies and you had to shop in there and it was 20 miles away. And sometimes we'd go with him. And when I was living in the hostel and that boy made that statement and my mother and I would, she would rarely come into town with him. But somehow or other, there were two pressures on me. I had very quickly a realisation my father was not paying the fees for me to board and I would have to leave. I can't tell you how much I wanted an education because I'd had in in some ways an idyllic life in a one-teacher school, always come first in my class because I was the only one, (laughs) and read all the time, played with the little kids, looked after them, And, and I was given a lot of responsibility apart from my numeracy. And I think... That tension and being my mother's keeper in a way um, was something that went with me in my life. But she, my mother bravely went and applied for a scholarship for me to stay in that little hostel and I got it. But it was dependent on me being a good girl and passing each year. 
because it stopped and I knew that wasn't a threat, it was real. I'd seen it happen to other kids. They just went back to the farm at 12 and suddenly they were 14 and, and nobody noticed they hadn't been in school for two years. So for me that get, getting into, I mean, I'd never been in a class with people, you know, I was a solo operator. And strangely, I never thought about it, about myself, but being out on the road talking to literally thousands of people in the last year, which has been great fun, I do see myself differently and I do see that independence Mm. and I see the longing always, the curiosity and the longing for the adventure of pursuing the curiosity is a big part of my life and sometimes that means I went on boards where I had absolutely no qualifications that I could see but someone else saw something in me and what I say to young women, someone sees anyone ask you to do something and they think you can, you probably can. And I think after 81 years and looking back on the career you've had, I think it's fair to say that uh, the roles that you were pushed into were the right ones. Um, After leaving school, you earned a scholarship to study teaching and this is where you began your career. Was starting your career in education an important precursor to your next steps in political lobbying and advocacy? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I didn't even know what an arts degree was, but I had two scholarships to get to go there, um, and I took the teaching one. And I know when I walked into the classroom with these shiny little faces in front of me, I thought, I've come home. This is my place. And I've never really let go of that. I just think of myself as working in different classrooms. Um, <laughs> and I, I knew that that was a really happy place for me. And because educational provision, preparation for teaching was a two-tiered system then I had the joy of doing an arts degree and even though I was you know bonded to teaching there was no pressure on you there was nothing to do with teaching in your first degree so you had an opportunity to think broadly learn to research and I'm a joiner I you know from being a single operator in a a primary school and then moving to you know one then having to go to a bigger high school I found that I joined things and so you know I was in review and I played hockey and and I just loved university life. And then suddenly I was on demos. Strangely, they were demos about women in science, you know, how the world moves. I spent Tuesday morning talking to astrophysicist women, female. Yeah, wow. And I think then I knew that I'd always be a teacher of some sort. And, of course, I didn't realise then that the trap for young women like me was that we were so thrilled with our teachers' college scholarships that, we didn't have to pay a bond back if we got married. Now think about the deal of that. Mm. Men didn't have the same. Men got married. They had to pay the bond back if they left teaching. And it was only about 10 or 15 years later that I realised actually they were giving women jobs and men careers. And that's why you saw no female principals for years and years and years, despite Mm. enormously intellectual, well-educated women. They were all casual. So they weren't in the system. So we, even the first women graduates, we were never in the system. Mm. For years and years and years we didn't get there. And that changed the face of education. But at least we were so happy to be educated that I don't think we thought about it until we suddenly got sidelined if we had a child. I remember thinking, you know, have a child? I could be really brutal about this and say if we decided not to give our child to the system or not to have one mate you wouldn't have a job Mm. 
we yeah. control the rights of reproduction. Yeah. I got interested in reproduction. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how that pathway took place. And I guess that leads me into my next question, which is, you know, I want to ask you about the establishment of the New South Wales branch of the Women's Electoral Lobby, which uh, you started in 1972. It seems to be one of the bigger turning points in your career and your dedication to equality and progress. Was there a really specific moment in time where you remember uh, realising, oh, my life is going to be about making the world fairer and particularly making it fairer for women? There were probably three or four quick moments. The first moment when I was thinking about a world being fairer for women was about strangely getting husbands into the labour room, labour ward. Um, and it was a big fight. Basically, we were taking on the gynaecological obstetric groups in hospital. There were some very supportive doctors, including my obstetrician, who suggested I join the Childbirth Education Association. Anyway, we won that battle and there's nothing better than winning a battle and enabling people to partners to be present at the birth if that's what the couple wants and then because of that I met a whole lot of people I'd never met before and they were all interested in fairness and many of them were teachers and because they were the best educated women at that time in New South Wales Australia and that led me into abortion law reform and that's when I understood the fundamentals of feminism because I'd been reading feminist literature. I lived in London and, and Pittsburgh and worked there before I came back to Australia and after my marriage. And suddenly that clicked. Being in charge of having a baby, whether the time was right, and then that moment of thinking, why did I never say that I'd had a termination of pregnancy? Every doctor I went to in, in family planning in the UK and so on, People would say, and the doctor who, where I got the pill from when I was getting married, they all assumed um, no previous sexual experience or or lots. But when they asked the question, um, you know, any previous pregnancies, I'd just look them straight down and say no. But I had had a termination. And the women's liberation movement, which was such an important movement at that time, and talked really about inverting the, the, you know, the world on its head for female opportunity. That was the starting point. That was the literature I was reading. But I was always a person who wanted to flick the system. So women's electoral lobby, I couldn't wait for the revolution. I wanted reform right now. And that's still me. And some people think that's wussy and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But so those moments, and it was about, reproductive health you know that's the terminology but the fact is it was unfair that women who were poor or didn't have partners couldn't bring their husband or their other members of the family because all throughout London the whole family was there you know and everyone birthed at home and it made you realize that birthing is a social construct around women and then I watched women you know delivering with mirrors in uh, Pittsburgh and really No woman can be successful unless she's in charge of her reproductive rights, unless she has reproductive rights. Mm. That's the big movement. But I got there in tiny steps, but they were winning steps. And so women's electoral lobby, the other thing that I loved about our first meeting, which came out of an abortion law reform grouping, um, was the idea that we would ask men what they thought because most of us just sort of, you know, moved around and um, squirrelled about and, and so on and did our best. 
So we were meeting women now as friends and colleagues in a way that was completely unlike what the we met before. We'd met our husband's friends over dinner and we'd cooked the dinner and served it. And it was fun. And I was a bit of a corporate wife coming up at that stage. And I never really thought much ahead. And I think that turning point for me was putting the ad in the National Times, 80 of us put it in to say to the cops, we're here, come and arrest us. Mm. And that's when you realise it's never actually about you. The personal is the imperative, the kick in, but really it's about all of us and everyone has to share those rights. So I just became, you know, really passionate about women's electoral lobby and when we questioned the men, even men that we liked for the questionnaire, it was astonishing to see how little they knew about us or cared. Mm. They just had us there as wives. Mm. And the famous quote from Sir John Cramer, you know, in response to what's the greatest attribute a woman can bring to political life, her virginity. I mean, he was my local member. That was just a most gobstacking moment. You know, I'm talking 1972. Yeah. And there are always pivotal moments. And the next pivotal moment was being told I got no credit for the teaching overseas or my prior experience. Um, you know, it's all, it's all echoing around today. And the clerk in the department advising me not to go back to work when I'd had a baby because it wouldn't be good for the child. Um, and he's a recruitment person. Mm. And they're all light bulb moments. And they, as they accumulate, you're talking about systems and you're talking about belief systems and you're talking about recruitment systems and employment systems. Now, teachers were ahead of everyone at that stage because they had equal pay in New South Wales. But, you know, we haven't had equal pay. We've had, we won three court cases. But getting, getting the rate card up was a huge thing too, and that's the great achievement of women's electoral lobby. Research, mm. synthesis, and complete bravery about calling it as it is. And we've done that for 50 years now to see where the key points, and it's still, I think, the best survey about where women sit in the system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to go back to a comment you made about, you know, husbands and, and you know, their reliance on wives. and But your husband, Gordon, didn't seem to, to kind of follow that mould at all. And um, he joined you in one of your first campaigns and the campaign that you spoke about, about fathers being present at the births of their children. It's quite an unusual stand for a man of that generation to take. Um, what was it like having him push for this kind of social change with you? It was wonderful. It gave me room to move. And if, you know, the people who sort of crossed the street, men with sort of phlegm, you know, flicking out of their mouths saying, there's that feminist. But, I mean, just Gordon was proud of what I did. And even if he didn't, when he suggested when Sophie, our firstborn child, was eight months old that I go back to work, I felt slightly resentful. I could see all these other women, you know, sort of having a good time, as I've been having with Sophie <laughs> and sitting around. I thought, oh, my God, I think he means it. And he said, <laughs> and I was campaigning for it, but there just was a moment and he, and he said, well, he said, I want to be a good father and you want to be a good mother. So we both need to go to work. We earn about the same amount of money and we just make sure it works. And it always did. And so, 
you know, he would come home and have dinner, even if we both, you know, did stuff at night. We were sort of urban um, warriors at that stage because our suburb was being taken apart. He was an unusual man for his time and he wasn't outspoken about it, but he was always defend me. He always had my back. Mm. You know, of all the things that you love about the, the first young men that you really work with, over a 53-year-old marriage, what matters is that your partners, you have each other's back because there are tough times, always, with children, with ourselves, parents and so on. So for me, even if I was copying it in Parliament by the dreaded Ray Hadley or someone else, <laughs> I always knew I was loved. And that is a huge thing. Mm. I was loved by my parents. I was the only child for four years because my mother had children, you know, four and then four years and four years and then 25. Um, But I think if a child is secure and grows into a secure adult, it takes an awful lot to get rid of that. Mm. Systems Mm. might cry and if the partner who you care about the most um, has your back, you're a lucky person. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me what it was like crossing that divide from lobbying into politics when you were appointed to the Women's Advisory Council in 1978 to advise then PM Malcolm Fraser. Look, I think it was it, it was a wonderful thing for me to do. And, in fact, Bob Ellicott, who's a neighbour, who was the Minister for Home Affairs at the time, and he died recently, fairly recently, because you never know how you get there. No one ever tells you. Haven't applied for it. Someone makes, you know, taps the shoulder, gives a phone call. And I said, you know, tell me how each of those women got there. Well, people from each state, you know, parliamentary people have a turn. And I said, well, I don't fit any of those. And he said, we have to have a feminist. And you were the leading acceptable feminist. <laughs> um, that's because I wore lipstick, I think. And he then said, but he said, the other thing is, you were the person who wasn't frightened to speak out and we had to have someone. And the fact that you were a family planner and that was, you know, I was a family planning education officer, you already had a track record in the community about changing ideas. So I became the sort of unofficial feminist in the group and I really valued that. So there was a moment when they were trying to take the uh, abortion off the medical benefit schedule and he said to us, it would be good if we do. He said to Barabara Pair, our chair, be good if um, Women National Women's Advisory Council didn't get too engaged in that. Well, I was in a really tough position then. However, the other women said, well, you know this stuff, so come on, we're all going. And I remember there was a town hall meeting in Brisbane and parliamentary colleagues were ringing me and saying, don't go, don't go. And the more they said, don't go, the more I want to go. So Quentin and I walked in and the whole hall stood up and we had a session on that. And I think that they expected us to do it, but they didn't want to be seen giving us permission. And that's another subtlety when you're in one of those jobs. And Malcolm Fraser was, he ratified the human relationships inquiry and he'd made a commitment before the election to do that. I mean, that was really meant to be about gay marriage and opportunities, lifting bans on homosexual men, that made a very big difference because Mm. we were educating him face-to-face and Beryl always said go to the top. You haven't got time to mess around with the bottom. You're not 
a union or you're not an employer group or anything, you're, you, you'll get three years if you're lucky on this and you've got to change policy fast. So she'd take us in there and then it was one memorable day when she's there. She was a stunning woman and she said, Malcolm, I've, I understand that you've got this bill coming up. And he said, oh, yeah, he said it's just about the Lusher motion, the abortion motion. Uh, she said, well, I've noticed that it's up down for um, March 8th. He said, yeah, that's right. And he's, she said, you know what day that is? And he said, no, no. He said, it's International Women's Day. You're not doing it. Like, I'm standing there going, oh, my God, she's telling the Prime Minister what to do. But it was classic. And I, it's a big imprint in my mind because she was, she was polite in the best way, but she took no nonsense. And mm. that, that's a really, was a really pinpoint. And before we knew what happened, she, you know, we were having our meetings out in the community about it. And she had it deferred for four weeks, and by that time, he, they'd lost. Mm. So there are things, and it was an it was an extraordinarily successful group activity because we did, you know, mothers of disabled children, childcare for immigrant women, and it was such a huge agenda, and it was leading up to developing an agenda for the um, 1980 UN meeting for women. And we use the questionnaire all over Australia for women. I'm, I smile somewhat when people say, oh, we're going to do a question women, the first in the world. And I go, no, no, we did it in 1980. Yeah. You know? yeah. And that's another good thing about being old, Tala. I'm a living memory of, and that's largely why I wrote that book. I wanted to be a personal social history because a lot of my friends have died. And I always sort of felt that we kind of owe it to them because, you know, you hear people all the time making comments that, frankly, aren't true. And you just need a bit of a corrective place to be and some references, so I think. And in a way, it's much nicer to be. Nice is a funny word, but there's something redemptive about belonging to a long line of women who question where they fit. Mm. and decide to redesign it. And I've just got this little thing here somewhere from Susan Anthony who said, you know, the girl who can earn her own income and buy her own house and so on in the 1840s. I'm really proud to be part of that. Yeah, and part of it in a big way in Australia, I would say. <laughs> but I'm also proud of the women like you and Georgie I work with a lot and so many and my daughter and, and Alexandra who's saying with me at the moment, and I just think it's more than the old girls. And I said to my daughter, yes, I was going to Cremorne Girls High School. I was going to meet the girls. And she said, Mum, how old are the girls? And I said, <laughs> oh, well, I'm thinking of them still. I see them. <laughs> oh, so 78. Because <laughs> I was only three years older than them. We were teaching. It's so always funny. the girls, though. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Wendy, I loved this one quote from you about an incident after you became deputy chair of the board of the ABC in 1983, and you asked them why they'd never employed a female newsreader, and they responded that women's voices weren't authoritative enough, to which you replied, well, my voice is, so let's change it. And you did. But I want to ask about the strength and conviction in moments like that to stick your neck out knowing that the response would often be hostile. Where did that come from? I'm not sure I know, but <laughs> I do know that I knew it wasn't about me. I'm at my best when I'm working with a group of women. And 
I always remember Beryl and a woman called Joan Bielski, who was a very senior woman in the New South Wales Department of Education. And I have a sense of fairness working through me. I'd been put onto that board to change that organisation. I'd been invited by the Prime Minister to do that. And there were three women on that board. And I'd also, the Women's Coming Out show was on on the ABC at the time. And I said in my head when he was saying that to me, I was thinking, you don't own the airwaves, you know, they're ours. They're all of us. They're for all of us. That's when I come out and and say things like that. And then there's a responsibility on me to deliver. And I like having that responsibility because then I know it's not just about me. I'm not going to read the news on the ABC, but I'm sure we're all going to find a pipeline of women who I know can do it. And you think then only Margaret Crosby had done it a couple of times, otherwise no no women's voices and women weren't allowed to carry the camera equipment. And no one, no woman was allowed to comment and go to the ABC, uh, go to the Olympics. We changed, <laughs> you know, they said to me, one male broadcaster's never, cricket broadcaster has never forgiven me because there was an allocation of tickets and Debbie Spillane got the gig. And I was a marked woman by some of those men. <laughs> I couldn't care less. I, want, I wanted, because one person, life can change in a moment. Practice can change in a moment. And no one could ever give me a reason why that was convincing. To say that they're not authoritative, well, they're authoritative in lots of places where men aren't. So we just need to, you know, that, and that could be nursing or childcare or family events. Mm-hmm. So they accept it when it suits them. But, mm. you know, it's a bit of a game. But they held the belief fervently. Mm. You wouldn't do what a woman told you to do. Well, don't say that to me. Mm. Okay, so as you know, this series is called It Takes Boobs and it's about challenging that sexist trope that persists around it taking balls to get things or get big things done. So I want to ask you, is there a key moment in your life and career, although I do suspect there are many, (laughs) where you look back and think, yep, that was an undeniable it took boobs moment? Oh, I think even saying that to the broadcaster, but another one that was really powerful. I mean, I loved the ABC. And I worked heart and soul for it. And there were lots of moments, but they had this thing called the Senior Officers Association. And effectively, they were the power group in the ABC. And there was one woman, and she was the legal director. And so she had no line responsibility. So she really didn't count. And she was indulged in a way um, to perform because she wasn't very good. And I think when the Senior Officers Association uh, responded to a motion put up and accepted at the board meeting that all interview panels would have women on them and one woman at least had to be interviewed for every position. So they said they'd go on strike and I said, okay, and they said, and you're directed to come to the meeting that we're happy. I said, I'm very happy to come to the meeting, but I'm not coming because you directed me. I'm happy to, it's part of it. <laughs> so I walked in and it was like there was a church in Pittsburgh where they used to play jazz. And one night Gordon and I walked in and we realised we were the only white people. So the only time I ever felt frightened, I thought, I said, we have to make a Australian voice sound so they know we're not white Americans. Because it, 
the room was vibrating with tension and great music. Anyway, our Australian accents got us through that moment. But I'm thinking I walked into that room and there were 50 of them and it felt like that. I felt really, really threatened. So the first person looked out and started speaking and said, um, are they going to ban me from all committees and so on? So I'm sitting there and he said, it's outrageous, you know, it's not fair and, you know, women aren't up to the mark or various things like that. And they said, so we're boycotting all the jobs and we're not going to apply. And I said, well, that'll be perfectly fine with me because you won't get them and the process will go straight ahead. And they just about fell over. And <laughs> long after, you know, men had that, it, and we we advertised all the jobs the next day and we stuck to our guns. And, of course, it everything changed then. And in a funny way, it, it's like it, it's a form of bullying. Mm. You, know, you don't count. You don't, you're just some clutterbike passing through because the government's, you know, got equal opportunity legislation. Well, I might, you know, I might be um, a token appointment because I'm not a broadcaster, but I'm not a token board member. I, mm. I had a mocha board, yeah. No, token is not a word that I would use to describe you in any regard, Wendy. Um, Look, when it comes to advocacy for women, you have always pushed incredibly hard and championed widespread reform in education, social policy, health, reproductive rights and business. Even now into your 80s, you're still regularly speaking at events and conferences on podcasts like this one in policy forums. It is really incredible. Um, have you ever felt overwhelmed or exhausted by the load you bear or worn down by the words of trolls? No. So having too many boards is fine when they're going well. And then it's just like holding a whole lot of balloons in your hand, balls in your hand, and as long as they don't all come down at once and only one goes badly, <laughs> you're fine. But it's it's not good enough governance really. It's quite be- hard to hold a lot of balls in one hand though. <laughs> No, you have to juggle, you have to throw. I was in the circus during that time. (laughs) But I felt overwhelmed then. I always feel overwhelmed if something goes wrong in the family and then I have to work out why. So I try never to be in a position where I can't do my job. And and I've had, you know, a few challenging moments. And it's mostly about rogue directors or not getting money or whatever. But I got better at that and but. That's the trap. You get better at it. Do you think you can do more? But actually there is a limit on how how many you can do well. And in terms of trolls, I was saying the other day that if I am trolled on uh, the internet or I I never see it, you know, I tweet and so on, but I I never get bad feedback. My chosen place for attack was always Parliament. Mm. All the men who stood up in Parliament and and then a nice little drop on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald saying I was double dipping. And that prob- that was the, really the methodology, really. That was the trolling of that time. But that started for me in 1972, you know, as a feminist. And feminist was a very bad word, but a glorious word for us. Mm. And I think then when, after Gordon died, and I was on, I think I was still on two boards then, I felt completely overwhelmed being able to do anything and I more or less took the advice of my Greek friend is get under the doona for a year as much as you can, which I did. But I think it's the load when things go wrong and not leaving enough space for that that is hurts the most. And 
And the other way, I think we're always susceptible if our children do anything wrong. I mean, my heart aches for people who are exposed, whose children's lives mm. are exposed when things go wrong. We all have to accept our individual responsibility. And, and I very rarely answer back because I've found that if I just shrug it off or say something, you know, I, I don't do it. I think not clapping back is, is actually some very powerful advice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe something I need to get better at. <laughs> Well, I see a lot of people trying to answer it and so on, and it doesn't work mostly, and it then becomes a big story. So don't do you it. You use your energy yeah. elsewhere. Conserve it for better yeah. pursuits. Yeah. One last question, Wendy. What is the best advice you can offer to little girls who might be looking at the world right now and its myriad gender gaps just as you did and thinking I could change that? I think you encourage them as much as you can to think that everything is Everything we do is capable of change and everything we do can be better. But most of all, work hard to give them a voice. Let them know how to change, how to have discourse. I mean, I think from an early age when children are asking questions about things, a lot of parents shut them down. And it, it's in my, like my early life, don't you know, you can be seen but not heard. Um, and I think we don't give enough space in many places for children to have that and as a parent when you're guiding that the sense of social and emotional autonomy for a girl because a, a girl who is confident does not become a victim and the, the line I used to use in the book I wrote about sex and lines that you know to deal with difficult things is no one can feel inferior without giving their consent and that's when I sort of worked out that I would never give my consent to being my father's accomplice or manager or whatever. That was his life and his choice. And I've always said with my children that whatever I say is what I say in public and that's not their fault and it's mm. not their story. And at times it's been good. When I was the Cleo sex reporter, sex advisor, all the kids in the neighbourhood used to come and read the early Cleos because they dropped into my house for three or four days before they were published out in the news agent. No parent ever complained or and no kid ever complained. But some kid, the kid said to me, your mother says that. How does she know that stuff? You know, <laughs> and my, or, you know, earlier versions of that, thank God my parents don't have sex. <laughs> That's what kid, young kids used to say. They wouldn't do that, would they? <laughs> Wendy McCarthy, it was an absolute privilege speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 